0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Okay, my name is Paul Cook. I'm one of the leaders uh, here at Belmont. And uh, today we've got the pleasure of starting a new series. We're going to be thinking about the Magnificat, uh, about Mary's song, Just in case the uh, the term Magnificat may be one that uh, you're not particularly familiar with, Uh, let me uh, just explain where that comes from. It comes from the Latin translation of the Bible, uh, which was probably the only translation around for well over a thousand years. And in this particular uh, verse that uh, that begins Mary's song in Latin, it starts, Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul glorifies the Lord. So that's where it comes from. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a song that Mary sings that we find in Luke chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, uh, you might like to have it open at Luke chapter 1 because that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Uh, we're going to be thinking particularly this morning in, our first ser- in the first in our series about the person who God chose. So let me just pray uh, before we open God's word together. And uh, ask him to bless uh, us as we do that. So Father God, we thank you so much for this precious word. Thank you that uh, it's been translated down the centuries into so many different languages. So that probably whatever our heart language today, we can read in this room. We can read this book in our own language. We thank you for that. Because these words are precious to us. They are life to us. They are you speaking to us. So we thank you and we praise you for giving us your word. And we pray that as we open it this morning, uh, we'll be able to see you in it. We pray that you'll be pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ through all that we read together and we say together. So Lord, please take my words and bless them. Stuff that's unhelpful, uh, I pray that will just fall by the wayside and stuff that's from you, I pray it really hit home this morning in our hearts and in our minds, for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, um, a few years ago, uh, I'm going sort of maybe four or five years ago, just in the immediately pre-COVID season, uh, we had a guy in the church called Joshua. Some of you will remember Joshua. He was an international student. And he had an amazing gift for inviting people to church. I don't think I've ever met anybody who invited more people to church than Joshua. And one day, he brought with him a group of friends who were Muslims. And he said to me, Paul, would you mind, after the service, would you mind meeting with my Muslim friends because they'd like to speak to a church leader? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to speak to them. And then I thought, oh, I wonder what they're going to ask me about. They might have all kinds of tricky questions, you know, about the Trinity or about the differences between the Quran and the Bible. Uh, Will I know enough to be able to answer their questions? Do you know what the main question was they wanted to ask me? It was this. What do you think about Mary? I didn't see that one coming at all, but that's what they wanted to ask me about. What did I think about Mary? Um, And I discovered afterwards that actually Mary is the only woman who is named in the Quran. And apparently she's mentioned more than 70 times in the Quran. And she's described in the Quran as being chosen above the women of all nations. And that just reminded me really of that verse that we're going to read uh, in a moment when we look at the Magnificat, where Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Uh, I think it was like 10 days ago, 11 days ago the world population went over 8 billion. Did you, did you notice that in the, in the news? Well, apparently there are just over 2 billion Christians in the world. There are just under 2 billion Muslims in the world. That means that together there are 4 billion people in the world who in some way, shape or form regard this woman Mary as being special, significant, important in some way. And of course... If you're in a Catholic tradition or one of the older Christian traditions, there will be the practice of the veneration of Mary. And maybe that's why uh, my my Muslim friends ask me, what do you think about Mary? Well, actually, what I think about Mary doesn't really matter, does it? Um, What does the Bible say about Mary? That's what we want to have a little bit of a think about this morning at the start of our series. So in the first half of the talk, I just want to give a little bit of background about what uh, we learn about Mary in the first chapter of Luke. And then I'm going to go on to look at the first few verses of her song, the Magnificat. So we're going to be in Luke chapter one, just to start with, uh, verses 26 to 38. Uh, If you want to follow along, I won't be reading these verses out, but I just want to pick out some of the really important things that we learn in these verses uh, from, uh, from Luke about Mary. So the first thing is we're told where she lives, and she lives in northern Israel in a town called Nazareth, frankly a provincial backwater with a very indifferent reputation at best, not the kind of place you'd expect somebody really important to come from, but that's her home. And we're told that she's a virgin who is pledged to be married to a guy called Joseph, and we learn from elsewhere that Joseph Uh, Was either a carpenter or possibly a mason, somebody who was in the construction business anyway. Uh, But she's a virgin, and that means in the Bible what it means today she has not had sexual relations. But in the culture of the day in uh, first century Palestine, if you were, uh, once you were sort of engaged to somebody, you were officially married to them, but there was a period during which your, uh, your marriage was not going to be consummated. And she's in that position. She is pledged to be married. So it's official, but she hasn't yet consummated her marriage. And she's probably quite a young woman. Um, I love our series image, the one that's in the, uh, the bottom left of the screen as you look at it. But I think it just makes Mary look a little bit older than perhaps she probably would have been. Because she looks like she's in her 20s there, probably. Whereas I think it's more likely that Mary was in her teens. So I prefer this image, uh, which is a slightly younger Mary with a a slightly younger Joseph as well. But that's the position that she's in. and She's just looking forward to doing what all of the girls of her age would have been, been expecting their life to be. Getting married to somebody, possibly having children with that person, if that's possible. Uh, And just being in their village for the rest of her life. That's what she was going to be like with her her whole existence mapped out before her. And then something extraordinary happens. The angel Gabriel, who stands in the very presence of God, appears to her and says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. He doesn't say she's perfect. He doesn't say she's the most amazing woman who's ever lived, but he does say you are highly favoured, and he does say the Lord is with you. Now, that must be terrifying for Mary, mustn't it? Suddenly have an angel appear out of the blue and say that to you. Uh, But what he said next is even more extraordinary. He says, the angel says to her, I know you're a virgin, but you are going to conceive a child in your womb without any man being involved at all. The Holy Spirit of God is going to come upon you and is going to start that miracle of creation in your womb. And therefore the child who you will give birth to is going to be the son of God in a very literal sense. And I can only begin to imagine how mind-bogglingly crazy that must have seemed to this young woman. And yet, how does she respond? She responds in the most extraordinarily open way to what God wants to do with her and through her. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Incredible openness. So Mary's a very ordinary young woman in lots of ways. Ordinary town, ordinary background, ordinary life to look forward to. And then suddenly something utterly extraordinary happens. But in a way, what's even more incredible than the thing that happens to her is her response. Just her trust in God who's revealed himself to her in this way. And it reminded me of the talk we had last week. I don't know if you were here last week. I wasn't, but I was able to catch up online afterwards. And Gemma really helpfully, I think, um, explained to us from John's gospel that when we have signs and wonders from the Lord that we experience, they're great. Who doesn't love a sign and a wonder? They're marvelous because they show us that God is real and present and powerful. But we can't really build an ongoing relationship on God with signs and wonders uh, our ongoing relationship with God the Father needs to be rooted in that daily trust, that daily obedience. And we see that in Mary. She had the signs and the wonders in abundance, didn't she? My goodness, didn't she have those? But it's her trust in her Father God, which is just extraordinary. Okay, so we're nearly getting to the song now, but we need to, every song needs a stage, right? So we need to see the stage for this particular song. Incidentally, you will notice when we look at it in a minute that the Bible doesn't say that Mary sang. <laughs> I suspect she didn't sing, to be honest. But we call it Mary's song because, A, it's kind of written poetically, and B, very often in churches it's been set to music. So that's why we tend to call it Mary's song. But every, st- every song does need a stage. And the stage for this song is not where Mary lives. It's not Nazareth up in the north of Israel. It's down in the south of Israel, an area called the hill country of Judea. Why does she undertake an 80 to 100-mile journey to sing a song? Because she could have sung it where she was, couldn't she? She could have sung it in Nazareth in her room on her own. But she doesn't do that. She travels. Why does she travel? She travels because she's got one person in particular that she wants to hear this song and respond to this song as her first person to hear it. And that's her cousin, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth is in her wider family, and she probably knows her because when the big Jewish festivals in Jerusalem go on, they probably would have met up with their their bigger family down there. Uh, And everyone knew that poor Elizabeth, uh, and she was an older woman now, had never been able to have children, and that was a great sadness for her, and her husband, Zachariah. But the angel has said to Mary that your cousin Elizabeth, the one that everybody knows, has never been able to have children and is now past childbearing age. She's six months pregnant. And Mary would have thought at that point, I'm sure, I have got to go and see this woman. This is the one who knows what it's like To have somebody appear to her and tell her something utterly extraordinary, miraculous is going to happen concerning a baby. So off she goes. And when she knocks on the door and says greetings to her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what she says. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, who's going to be the future John the Baptist, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. There's that trust again. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, and this is the song, okay? I'm not gonna sing it, but this is the song. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful Of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Amen. The song goes on, but I'm going to stop it there because the rest of the series will look at the rest of the verses of that particular song. Right now, I think there are. T- I think there's loads that we could talk about in those four verses, but there are two big questions that I think uh, Mary gives us some answers to, or begins to sketch some answers to, uh, in these four verses. And these are the these are the the, um, the questions. The first one is a really massive one. What am I here for? What's my purpose? Doesn't get much bigger than that, does it? And the second one is almost as big, actually. What's God like? If there is a God, Mary believed there's a God, I believe there's a God, what's he like? So two massive questions that I think we have elements of of an answer to just in these four verses. Okay, let's have a look at the first one, shall we? What's my purpose? I, I bet we've all asked that question at some point in our life. What are we here for? What are we doing? What's our purpose? And it's one of the biggest questions that we can ask as a human being. And maybe, I don't know where you are in relation to this question this morning, but it may be that you're feeling, I don't have a purpose. I'm not sure there is any meaning to life. And of course, that's a a perfectly popular view these days, isn't it? Um, One of the people, I think, who sums it up most clearly is a French biochemist and philosopher called Jacques Monod, who said this uh, 50 years ago now, he wrote this. He says, Ma- man, humankind, finally knows that he is alone in the, in the indifferent immensity of the universe from which he emerged by accident. Have a nice day. Um, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a grim assessment of the human condition, but... I think a lot of people feel that way. And if you don't believe there is a God, then why not? Why not? Who's there to give us a purpose? We are just maybe a collection of atoms randomly put together in a far-flung corner of the absolutely vast universe. I can understand why an atheist would have that view. But as somebody who's not an atheist, I believe obviously there's a much better and more hopeful story that exists. And so that's the one I want to share with you now. And I'm going to go back, ooh, nearly 400 years, I think, to the middle of the 17th century, to a group of people who I think explained this uh, really helpfully for our purposes this morning anyway. These guys uh, are uh, a group called the Westminster Divines. Uh, Westminster Divines. Westminster Divines. They're called the Westminster Divines because they met in, um, in Westminster Abbey and the Palace of Westminster. Uh, and uh, they're called Divines because a lot of them were theologians or Bible scholars. Some of them were even members of parliament at the time. And they, they gathered together because their purpose was to uh, restructure the Church of England as it was in the middle of the 17th century. And they produced various things that they, that they wrote about this. But one thing that they wrote which has remained quite famous, actually, down to this day in Christian circles, is uh, a thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, a catechism is just a, a way of learning something. So you've got a question and an answer, a question and an answer. And it was particularly for children, and they were supposed to learn the answers to the questions. I don't think we'd introduce this in Kids for Christ or SOS or anything like that, by the way, because we prefer children to discover truth for themselves uh, as we guide them through things these days. But back in the day, this is how they did it. Um, and the first question in this catechism is just a really great question. Uh, and it's this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our ultimate purpose? What are we here for? Yeah, it might think, seem like a big question to be asking children, but actually it's a question that we all need the answer to. And this is how they answered it, famously. They said, man's chief end, human being's ultimate purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In other words, we're not a random collection of atoms that have just happened to coalesce in a far-flung corner of the universe and we're just left to our own devices. If we have a purpose, it's one that we create for ourselves but it has no ultimate meaning. They say there is a God, and the reason he's given us life is that we should be glorifying him with our life, and we will have the opportunity to begin to enjoy him now and then to continue to enjoy him forever. That's what they say human life is all about. And I reckon they might have taken a cue from a teenage girl in Nazareth some two, well, and as they were writing, some 1,600 years previously. Because what does Mary say? She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God. And my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour and to enjoy him forever. She was deep, wasn't she? This teenage girl from Nazareth. She was deep. So I don't know if that's, uh, if that's your experience of your purpose in life, but I think that is what Mary would say her purpose in life was, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Just that concept of glorifying the name of God might seem a little bit abstract. I found this quotation from a Bible teacher called Darrell Bock very helpful. He says... Um, When Mary says she glorifies the Lord, it means that her words acknowledge the goodness of God and bring attention to him like a huge neon light shining out from a building. Uh, We all know what those look like, don't we? Often they're advertising places of entertainment or food or drink. But in Mary's case, it's blazing out the name of God, her saviour, into the darkness. That's what it means to glorify God. We say in Belmont speak, sharing the story, living the life. That's what she was doing. So what's your purpose? What are you here for? Mary knew what her purpose was and what she was here for. Second big question. What's God like? Assuming there is a God, and that's an assumption I'm making this morning, what's he like? Okay, well, Mary says a number of things to tell us. The first thing she says is, God is my saviour. That's really interesting, isn't it, that she should say, God is my saviour. Who needs a saviour? Well, I do when I make a blunder with my IT problems and, you know, I need somebody to help me out because I made a silly mistake. But normally, you talk about being saved and being rescued when you're in a perilous situation, don't you? Your life is in danger and you need somebody to come and rescue you from a perilous situation. And I think that's what Mary means when she talks about God being her saviour. It's not just an image. He is the one who has literally saved her from a perilous situation because Mary found herself in the same place that each and every one of us finds ourselves in relation to God. You see, God is perfect and he is holy in every way. And I'm not. And I'm going to take a calculated risk here and say you're not either. We've got this thing called sin in our lives. The things we do and think and say that hurt other people, that hurt us and that keep us distant from the perfect holy God. And sin, we know, leads to death. There's this massive chasm between us and between God. We need saving because otherwise we face that eternal separation, the chasm of death and hell. We need saving from that. How do we get across that gulf well of course the bible teaches us that we get across that gulf because jesus came and sacrificed himself to provide the bridge so that we might be able to come back into perfect relationship with god and you might say okay well how does that apply to mary because jesus is just like a tiny collection of cells in her womb at this stage how could he possibly be her savior that's a good question uh, but Mary has been brought up in the, in the Jewish faith and the, uh, the first part of this book, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, their pages, when you look at them, they speak about Jesus. They foreshadow the work of Jesus in the story of the sacrifices and the Messiah who was going to come. Jesus has always been God's saviour. He's foreshadowed in the Old Testament and he's revealed in the New Testament. But salvation is always, ultimately, through God the Saviour in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mary is also saved in that way as she builds on her understanding of her Jewish faith and gradually sees that the baby that she's, she's got in her womb is the one who brings into his inter life, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's Jesus' name. Jesus' name is all about salvation, doesn't it? It means, his name means the Lord saves, which is a beautiful name. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew, which is the other uh, Christmas story, if you like, uh, at the beginning of the New Testament, this is what the angel says, not this time to Mary, but to uh, her husband-to-be, Joseph, she says, the angel says, uh, your wife-to-be, Mary, is going to give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Don't call him anything else. Call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's why. We need saving from our sins. That was Jesus' name and that was the mission that he came to embody and to live out through his life, his death and his resurrection what's god like god is a savior that's the first thing to say he's a savior here's the second thing what's god like mary says a beautiful thing mary says that god is mindful i love that image of god being mindful um when we're mindful of something we're just paying really close attention to it aren't we often something from the natural world. It might be a flower or a plant, something that reveals the glory of God. And it's just a beautiful thing to look at. And Mary says God is like that. She says he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That's beautiful, isn't it? He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Um, I don't think this is a new thing. This is something that actually we find in the Old Testament as well. Uh, Here we have uh, um, the beginning of Psalm 139, for example, where the psalmist David, uh, one of Joseph's distant ancestors, says this, "'You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. "'You know when I sit and when I rise. "'You perceive my thoughts from afar.'" You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You're mindful of me. The stuff I do externally, the stuff that happens internally, you're mindful of it, God. You're a loving father who is mindful of his children. What's God like? God is a savior. God is mindful of his children. And then Mary says this amazing thing about all generations um, calling her blessed. Uh, And we've already thought about that, haven't we? Half of the world's population, 4 billion out of 8 billion today, holding her in some degree uh, of reverence and esteem. That's amazing, amazing fulfillment of those words. But why? Why is she so important? Why Why is she going to be called blessed by the different generations that have, been here over the past 2,000 years. Well, she gives us the reason, and it's not to do with her. You see, we, this morning we've been talking about Mary deliberately because that's what, we, that's what we have to do this morning because we're setting up the series and we need to think a little bit about her. So we're thinking about the person that God chose, but actually Mary doesn't want the spotlight to be on her. She wants the spotlight to be swivelled around She wants the spotlight to be on the name of God, the mighty one who has done great things for her. On the neon sign that's on the outside of Mary's life, it doesn't say M-A-R-Y. It says, God is my saviour. He is the mighty one who has done great things for me. Jesus is the one who saves. That's the thing that she's broadcasting out in her song. And she's right. God has done great things for her personally. Of course he has. What an extraordinary experience she's had. And how beautiful it is that she is the one who's going to bring the incarnate son of God into the world to be the savior of the world. He has done great things for her. But here's the really amazing thing. It's not just that God has done great things for Mary, is it? The next time that we see the angel in Luke's gospel uh, is at the time of Jesus's birth in Bethlehem. And on that occasion, the angel, the whole angelic chorus, what do they say to the shepherds? He says, uh, this birth of Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. Not just for Mary, not just for her family, not just for the Jewish people. But for all people at all times in all places, this is good news and this is great joy. And I think this is a a verse that just leads us now to where I want to finish this morning. Um, Because that idea of of Jesus coming for all people, not just for Mary, not just for a select few, for all people, is really summed up beautifully in uh, this very famous verse from from the Gospel of John where Jesus says, or possibly it's John the evangelist who says, God so loved the world, the whole world. He loved the world this much that he gave his only son. He gave his only son first of all in the womb of Mary and then born in Bethlehem, grew up to be a man. But then he gave his only son on the cross, didn't he? And whenever we think of the cradle, as we do, the crib, and when we come to Advent and Christmas, we need to remember that the cross is always casting its shadow over that crib. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, not experience that sin, that death, That we thought about earlier should not perish but have eternal life. That is God's will, that is God's wish for each and every one of us that we should come into a relationship with Him, that we should know, as Mary does, that God is her Saviour, and that we might be able to magnify the Lord in our life. Big questions big answers this morning. I don't know if those are answers that are your answers this morning but I think we need to spend a bit of time now just reflecting on how we're going to respond to Mary's song.